Well, good morning, church. It's a joy to be with you this morning and uh, to be able to worship our risen Lord Jesus Christ together. Um, as Rachel mentioned, my name is Doug, and I'm the uh, East Campus pastor, and I really enjoy being here with you. It's good to be back. As a church, we are uh, in Advent season, and uh, the last couple of weeks we've looked at a handful of just, I think what would be kind of considered just classic Christmas texts. We sort of started our series off by looking at Matthew chapter 1 together, and then the last couple of weeks we looked at the, the prologue of John chapter 1, both texts that are often uh, looked at and considered during this time of year. Um, as Rachel read for us this morning, you probably picked up, we're, we're looking at a text that is, I would say probably for many of us, not associated necessarily with Christmas, all right? Um, however, as I have reflected and studied this text, it has become for me, and I pray that it will for you, one of my absolutely favorite Christmas passages. Rachel just read it for us, and I'm going to just zoom in. We're really just going to look at two verses this morning. I'm just going to read those two verses one more time, and we'll just sort of zoom in on those. Verses 14 and 15. Read it again. I'm going to read it again, and we're thinking Christmas, right? Okay. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, fear is a part of being human. It's a part of life. Many of us know this. Uh, perhaps as we grew up, there's some fears that maybe you had as a little boy or a little girl. Maybe there's kids in here today and you can think of some things that maybe you're afraid of. For me growing up, it was always around sort of spiders and bugs. Anything that was a bug that I could squish, I was afraid of, terrified of it. I remember being paralyzed one time in college in Hillcrest dorm when I saw a cockroach in the middle of my room, like frozen for 15 minutes, terrified of it. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you have different fears in life that you've sort of been working through. What's interesting as I've grown is I've known that, noticed that my fears have changed. Um, a number of years ago, I found myself high on a ladder. And this is coming from a guy who has shingled more houses than I would care to keep track of. Um, found myself on this ladder high up in the air and suddenly my legs began to shake. And I'm thinking to myself, what is happening to me right now? You know, realizing like, I'm, I'm terrified. I don't want to be up here. This is Scary. As I got older, I've known, noticed that my fears have changed. Maybe you can relate. Reality is we're a fearful people. Living life, in some ways, is a matter of sort of dealing with those fears. If you just look over the last number of years of, of what has sort of topped the charts of what we as a people are most afraid of, year after year, somewhere in that top five number, is the fear, probably unsurprisingly, the fear of death. It makes sense that we would, as a people, be afraid of death. After all, life is sacred, and we also know it's fragile. And as long as there is a danger or a threat of harm to our life or to the life of those whom we love, there will be a fear of death. Now, my guess would be today there's probably two groups of people in this room. There are those who the fear of death is a very real 
thing. Maybe someone here this morning struggling with an illness or someone in your family, somebody close to you who's got, received a recent diagnosis. Maybe this past year has looked like you losing somebody. And the reality of death is very, very real to you. I think there's probably some of us in the room who are like that. I think there's another category of people, however, Pro probably a larger category of people in this room. And, and that's the category of people who probably haven't thought of death at all this week or, or maybe for, for the last month. In fact, you can't think of the last time you thought of death. And so you might be tempted this morning to be thinking, he has nothing to say to me. Well, I encourage you, I do. Actually, God does. So hang with me. There, there's a poet, one of my favorite poets, named Wendell Berry, and he has a poem that I think for us in some ways serves a little bit like a charge or a direction. It says this, do not live for death. Pay it no fear or wonder. This is the firmest law of the truest faith. Death is the dew that wets the grass in the early morning dark. It is God's entirely. Withdraw your fatal homage and live. Sounds like a great charge, a great direction. Withdraw your fatal homage to death and just get on living. The question for us this morning should be, is that really possible? Pain, death, no fear. Well, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 declares boldly and assuredly, yes, there is a way to withdraw your fatal homage to death and just live. So let's consider that together. The big aim for this passage this morning is simply this. Because of Christmas, we can know freedom from fear of death and really live. Because of Christmas, because God drew near, we as a people can know what freedom from the fear of death looks like and we can truly live. So as we look at our text this morning, three things. First, we'll consider the essence of Christmas. Secondly, we'll look at the accomplishment of Christmas. And then third and finally, we'll consider together the strategy of Christmas. So first, the essence. The text is pretty straightforward. Again, you'll be helped if you just have it open in your lap in front of you on your device and just looking at it. The text is a pretty straightforward text. It, it, there's a main clause, the, the first half of verse 14, and then it's followed by two purpose clauses. So let's look first at the main clause. This idea that because we share in flesh and blood, it says, another way of saying this is because we are human, the Son became human. The Son of, man, of God became a man. This is the author of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews uses sort of raw language, flesh and blood. and doesn't just say that he had a body and became like a man. But rather, it says he took on flesh and blood, really human in every single way. Now, for, for Christians, this is a core theological truth for us that's, that's life-changing, that Jesus had to become a human so that he could represent humans. 
Now, as we reflect on the incarnation, two things I want to point out. First is that the incarnation, the essence of what Christmas is all about, God drawing near, taking on flesh and blood, shows us first just how committed God is to actually keeping his word. Now, at the beginning of Hebrews, the author says this in the first couple of verses, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God's plan from the beginning has always been to make a people for himself, a people who enjoy his blessing and the blessing of his presence the reality of God being with his people and among his people. This was the plan from the very beginning. But if you read through the Old Testament, the story of God's people, of, of God calling a people to himself, it, it, it's a story of while they enjoyed his blessing, his presence, they continually were a people who turned their back against God. They turned their back to God over and over again, rejecting him and his goodness and his blessing. Yet, through their rejection, God continually remains faithful. He continually pursues his people. His plan doesn't change. His word remains faithful and true. Now, if you were to put yourself in a, in a Jew in these years, think about it. 400 years of silence separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. From Malachi to the first Christmas morning, 400 years of hearing nothing from God. Now, my suspicion is God's people were likely tempted to think that perhaps, maybe, God had forgotten them. Maybe God had enough, closed up shop and headed out of town. He hadn't spoken but Jesus breaking into the world as a human reminds us, as it did then, that God is faithful and he does just what he says he's going to do. It's a reminder that we can take God at his word. It's a truth today that we can hold on to. But secondly, as we consider the incarnation, not just is he faithful to do just what he says, but consider the wonderful way in which he demonstrates his faithfulness. Just reflect on the wonder of God taking on, sharing flesh and blood. God does not remain aloof or uninterested. He doesn't look at us in our mess and think to himself, no thanks, you know, I've had enough. I'd love to help them, but I need to sort of keep my distance. Got to be careful not to get my, my hands dirty with this one. Maybe I'll just make an app and fix it all. Kind of stay at a distance. Not at all. Rather, he steps into our mess. He takes on himself our reality. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this the wonder of all wonders says that God loves the lowly. That's what it demonstrates to us. God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. Rather, God marches right in. 
number of years ago, the president of Uruguay was a man by the name of Jose Mujica. Now, I cannot speak at all about this man's politics or policies. But his reputation was that of the world's poorest president. That's how he was referred to. Now, in a world that, where there's commonly complaints leveled against corrupt politicians and the lifestyles that they live as being sort of far removed from their constituents, this was not the case with President Mujica the world's poorest president. He refused the luxurious home that was provided for the president in his country and rather chose to live in a ramshackle farmhouse that his wife had inherited. He spent his days working the land. There are pictures online of him outside hanging up the laundry. Though he was paid $12,000 a month, apparently he gave 90% of his earnings to charity, and back to the people. It's the way he chose to live. Now, his reputation as the world's poorest president at the time was, was news. It stood out in the world. Stories like his, like that one, stand out in our world because we live in a world that doesn't operate like that. We live in a world that values upward mobility, climbing the ladder. Well, Christmas morning is a reminder that the God of the universe is a God who values climbing down the ladder, downward mobility, coming to his people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, though he had it all, for your sake he became poor, climbed right down into our mess so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Folks, this is the essence of Christmas. God, because we are humans, he shared flesh and blood, became a human like us. Then the text goes on and tells us what the accomplishment of this is. What did it accomplish? Two purpose clauses that followed. God became human like us, that, or so that, what does the incarnation accomplish? What are its effects? Two things. First, it destroys something. Second, it delivers something. So first, destroyed. It destroyed the one who has the power over death. Now, saying that Satan has the power over death is not to suggest that he has the ultimate power over it. The Bible clearly teaches that it's God who gives life and God who takes it away. No, to say that he has the power over death is to say that he influences the thing that causes death. Death is the consequence for our rebellion against God. It's what we get for turning our nose up and our back to God. It's the penalty for sin which means the only way to defeat death is to defeat sin. To try and deal with the penalty without dealing with the cause would be for us of no use at all. That's why Jesus came, to deal with our sin. Galatians 1.4 puts it like this. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Another way of saying this is that when Jesus came to earth, Satan got what he had coming. 
If you remember back in Genesis 3.15, this was the, the promise that God gave to the serpent when, when sin entered the world. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The one who has the power over death, the Bible says, is destroyed because of Christmas. What good news is that? Death is no longer a threat. Yes, we all die physically, but death does not master us because those who are in Christ can live again in Christ, in Him, forever. Secondly, it doesn't just destroy the one who has the power over death, but it also says delivers us from slavery to the fear of death. Two accomplishments. Destruction of the one who has the power over death and deliverance for those who are in slavery to the fear of death. Now, here's the deal. Death, as we all know, is real. It is real. And it's unjust. And it is cruel. It's a ravenous enemy. 20th century, and you know, just looking back is a good reminder of how real death is. The 20th century, as we know, has been sort of declared the most murderous uh, century of all times. Wars, genocides, reigns of ter terror, human instigated ecological catastrophes extinguished near, nearly 200 million lives in the 20th century. It's the most murderous century our world's ever known. We don't have to look back even that far. I mean, just think about our day and age today. Mass shootings, a threat all around us. Just coming on the heels of COVID, the fear of death loomed large in our culture as a reminder that death is real. And the Bible makes it very clear that mankind has good reason to be afraid of death. Ray Ortland says this, death is not just another phase in the circle of life. Death is an ending followed by a reckoning. Later in the book of Hebrews, the author reminds us, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. That's why we should be afraid. You and I will stand before God. We will report in, as it were. And how can we endure the scrutiny of God? On our own, we can't. We can't endure it. Our record will not satisfy his demands. That's why he needed to send another one like us, who shared in flesh and blood, who lived, suffered, and died, but unlike us, his record was without blemish. His life was free from sin. While death is real, our text reminds us this morning, as Marilyn Robinson has stated, the fear of death is not a Christian habit of mind. Death is real. But for the Christian, for those who are in Christ, it is not a habit of mind. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's likely two groups of people in our room today. Those of us, death is very real, something we think about a lot. And then there's those who haven't thought about it at all recently. And I think there's reasons for this, reasons that are sort of unique to our contemporary cultural moment. I can remember being a sophomore uh, when 9-11 happened. And I remember 
hearing the news and for the first day or two, sophomore in college, just in case you're trying to date me. There you go. I'll help you out a little bit, all right? I can remember just, just thinking to myself, actually being sort of overwhelmed with the fear of what might happen. I think it was for me in my life, even though there'd been family members who I'd lost before that, I think it was for me the first time in my life where I personally felt like, wow, I, I could die. I, I'm going to die. Death is a real thing for me, not just sort of out there that other people walk through, but it's, it's, it's a real thing that I'm going to have to face. And I think for many of us in our culture, there is this sort of feeling of invincibility that we have. It, death seems far and removed for some of us. We, we find ourselves oftentimes sort of, you know, just amusing ourselves throughout life just so we don't have to think about it. And we do a really good job of it. Our, our life is full of distractions. And this, although it's, it's one of the most terrifying things out there, we never give it any thought because we're always thinking about what today holds for us, our plans for the week or for the season, that we don't ever think about it. Well, the reality is, while we can be really good at distracting ourselves, death is real. And fear to this death is sort of in our blood. If you go all the way back in Genesis 3, when man first sinned, if you remember shortly after he sinned, he heard the sound of God walking in the garden. And what did Adam and Eve do at that moment? Remember the story? They, they hid themselves from God. And as God saw what was going on, you know, simply asked them, what are you doing? And in their response, why were they hiding from God? They're hiding from God because they were afraid. They were terrified. Charles Spurgeon says that it's sin makes miserable cowards of us all. Ever since that first sin, we have been a people who have been filled with fear. Now, we can try to distract ourselves, amuse ourselves, and not think about it, but the reality is it's in our blood. That's why Christmas is such amazing news. That's why when the angels appeared that night in the sky to the shepherds, some of the first words that came out of their mouth was, was fear not. Fear not. For I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people from this day forward. The promise of living life free from Fear has arrived. He's here. This is good news. Now, third and finally, if you go back into the verse, you'll see the strategy, how he accomplishes this. Now, obviously, the incarnation, God himself taking on flesh and blood, coming to earth, coming to be here like us as we are human beings is a part of the story. But it also says there's another key piece to this strategy. Look at your text. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. The strategy, a key piece to this strategy, was sort of two parts. One, God coming 
to earth, taking on flesh and blood, sharing in our humanity, stepping into our mess and misery. Part one. Part two, dying for us in our place through death. The incarnation is the key to all of this. Jesus became a man, and it was through his weakness, through his vulnerability, that he was able to destroy the power of Satan. His power is so great that he won the battle of the ages by coming down in our form, taking on the fragility of human flesh and blood, becoming weak, susceptible to abuse, to mockery, to pain, and to loss. Can you imagine, like we just got done singing there, can you imagine Satan watching all of this play out, sort of licking his chops, thinking to himself, this is my chance. God's become weak. Boy, was he wrong. Because Jesus, even in his most vulnerable state, is no match for the devil. Well, the way Eugene Peterson translates this in his The Message translation says, by embracing death, taking it into himself. That's how he did it. The thing that we're all terrified of, whether we know it or not, the most terrified of, Jesus wrapped his arms around it and took it down. Didn't stand a chance. He went through death and came out. I love how it says that, through death. Jesus goes through death and comes out victorious and more alive than ever and invites you and me to embrace and enjoy that exact life. God defeats Satan through suffering. Bible commentator H.A. Ironside said it like this, the Lord himself becomes our champion. He marches as our David to destroy great Goliath who has terrorized the world since the fall of Genesis 3. And the cross was for Christ a valley of Elah where he met our cruel foe and put an end to his authority over the souls of all who believe in the gospel. Jesus using the cross to defeat Satan is like David standing over Goliath, pulling out the sword, his own sword from his sheath and slicing his head off. It's the exact same thing. Jesus coming down, dying on a cross to defeat our great enemy. You know, recently I was, a couple weeks ago, our youngest is six, she's in kindergarten now, and she is an absolute pro at delaying bedtime. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this before or maybe been a part of this, I don't know. Um, whatever it takes. And so one of her favorite tactics um, in recent years, last year or so, I've just watched her just come alive and really enjoy the Bible. So I think there's some sincerity here, but I also know there's some strategy as well, all right? So oftentimes, one of her favorite tactics is to just, Dad, can you read me stories from the Bible? Well, how do you, you know, I'm a pastor, come on. How do you not, how do you not say yes to that? So and one of our favorite books at bedtime is the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible. Maybe many of you have heard of this or are familiar with it, but um, a couple about two weeks, two or three weeks ago, we were sitting on the couch, and she was just delaying as she does. 
And um, we read a couple of stories from his life. She wanted to learn about his life, okay? And so then she, the last question was, well, can we read the one about how he dies on the cross? I was like, yeah, let's do that. So we opened it up and, and began to read it. And I was, you know, I just really moved. I'm going to read a page of it here. But really moved by how just sort of emotional we both, like you could just feel the emotion on the couch. It's just, it was sad. And it's, it's just written very sadly. Um, I'm going to read it for us real quick, okay? This is what it says. It says, they nailed Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus gasped. They don't understand what they're doing. You say you've come to rescue us, people shouted, but you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A legion of angels would have flown to his side if he'd called. If you were really the son of God, you could just climb down off that cross, they said. And of course, they were right. Jesus could have just climbed down. Actually, he could have just said a word and made it all stop, like when he healed that little girl or stilled the storm and fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was his love. Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Papa. Where are you? Don't leave me. For the first time and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Tears rolled down Jesus' face, the face of the one who would wipe away every tear from every eye. Just that scene, you can maybe imagine father and a little six-year-old reading that page and her thinking to herself, I could see her face. Her face had totally changed from delay and fun to what in the world? She turned to me and with a very sad, I mean, tears, I could see them welling up in her eyes. Look, she said, why would God do that? Why would his papa not answer him. And I was getting emotional too at that point. And I simply said, because he loves you. That's why. And about a second or two passed after I said that. And a smile from ear to ear crawled across her face. And she looked back up at me and she said, and he loves you too, right? I said, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Through death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we as a people are freed up. No longer do we have to be in bondage to the fear of death because in Jesus, we can live with him forever. Christmas time is so special because it reminds us that God came, he became one of us, entered into our pain, our total mess of a world, lived the perfect life that we can't live, suffered the atoning death that we should have suffered, endured the wrath that we should have endured to offer an eternity with him that none 
of us deserve. That is good news. And for us, it brings great joy that is for all people. Now, in closing, if death, though certain, is no longer to be feared, yes, we die physically, but death doesn't master us because we can live again in Christ. If that is true, then and only then is it really possible to, in the words of Wendell Berry, withdraw our fatal homage to death and really live. The life that's not afraid of death, yet death is still painful. It hurts. But the life that experiences the pangs of death that's in Christ comes alive immediately after and will be with him forever.